Well, good to see everybody. That was the trailer for the new uh, production that we're doing out of Eastridge Productions <laughs> called Biblical Avengers Eternity War. Eh? Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, you know, obviously, I'm kidding, but uh, if you do have an extra 110 million laying around, let us know and we will do it, I promise. So that would be really cool. That's the thing about the Bible story that we're reading through in Love This Book. It's a ripping good story. And what you just saw is a part of that ripping good story that's just like, you think of all the things that capture our imagination in uh, film and, and stories today. That's, that's the kind of story this is. I mean, it, you just saw 500 years in, in about 70 seconds of God's original uh, story. Uh, you know, it starts off with David uh, being born around 1040, 1042 BC, and then he grows up and he rules uh, Israel for 42 years, and then he, he dies and his son takes over, Solomon, and you know how he came about, okay? And, and he became king uh, at 970 BC and uh, died in about uh, 731. It took about one year for the entire kingdom to blow apart, and it blew up. Uh, and split in two, ten t tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah, and they were doing everything they possibly could to screw up God's plan, to distance themselves from God, to you know, you know, tell God to leave them alone, and to really screw up everything that God had done to to uh, bring about this promise that He would bring about the Savior through uh, David's line. He'd been making this covenant or this promise all this time. So, uh, you know, they kept running and running and pushing and pushing against God. So God finally sends some prophets. And the one we're learning about right now is a guy named Elijah. He was one of the early ones. And he said, you better cut it out. You better cut it out. Better cut it out. And by the end of this time, uh, you know, he sends Isaiah and he says the same thing. You better cut it out because God's going to bring somebody down from the north and destroy you. But he's doing it so that you can come back to him. He's, doing, he's bringing his judgment so that you will come back to him and, and he can once again uh, put you on the mission, on the way to uh, redeeming the world and making everything new. But they, they didn't get it and they didn't accept it. Uh, and so God does exactly what he said he was going to do. He brings along these big bad people and they were bad. They invented things like crucifixion called the Assyrians. And they came down from the north and they munched up the northern kingdom, Israel, in uh, 722 and carted them off to uh, exile. And again, God starts sending them prophets saying, look, I'm putting you in exile so you'll come back to me, so you'll come back to me. One day I'm going to make everything right and fix this up, but you got to come back to me. And then he does the same thing when the big bad Babylonian empire comes, munches up the Assyrians, and then comes all the way down and takes Judah in 586 BC and carts off their king, a guy named Jehoiakim, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon apparently feels bad for him, so he invites him to come and sit at his table. But that's where we are in the story, and we're right in the middle of that today. It's about 850 B.C., and we're going to see the lives of Elijah and Elisha and a major change, a major transition, a major shift, a graduation, if you will. Now, see, just in a few seconds there, in a few minutes there, we went through a biblical history, and that was pretty painless-like, right? I mean, because a lot of people think biblical history is like a root canal. Sorry, Dennis, I know you think that too, but, but you know, it's not. It, because when you see God working in the epics of our lives, or the epics of his history, you begin to realize he's working in the little epics of your life and my life and in our church and what he wants to do. And you begin to realize what he's like. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're reading this. Not just, you know, to expand our egghead knowledge, but to see that God did that. He can do it on, on a much smaller but... Um, no less important scale in your life and my life for the purposes he has to draw us back to himself. But the first thing we got to know is what's that God like? And one of the things God does is he uses transitions. He uses what we're calling today graduations for his good purposes in our life. We've been in this series. This is the last installment of the series uh, called Pack Your Bags. And it, it's a, a, a series about getting ready for what's next. God preparing us for what's next and being prepared ourselves to, for whatever's next. And one of the most important things you need to know about what's next is who is this God that's going to go with you? And is he going to go with you? And, and what's that going to look like? And that's what we find out in the story today. And it is really practical and important, right? Because we all have a what's next. We all have a graduation, okay? We, we, all, go, we, we all have a grad, different graduations in our life where what happens after that is different. Life is different 
than it was before that, right? I mean, the, the easy ones are graduating from high school, graduating from college. Uh, we've been in this kind of situation in our culture long enough. You probably graduated from kindergarten, and you got a trophy, because everybody gets a trophy, even the kids that are lousy at whatever the thing is. But I was one of those, so I like it. But anyway, the, you know, those graduations or the, um, the graduation of, you know, moving into marriage or graduation of having kids. Oh, man, that's a big graduation. You really don't know what it's like on the other side of that one. Um, or graduation in your job. You're moving up in the corporation, you know, and I don't wish this one on anybody, but maybe you graduate into higher office in politics, you know. You're mayor of Happy Valley, then you become, uh, you know, a state senator or something, then you move on to governor, then you move on to president of the United States, or, or you can make it short. You can just go from reality TV star to president. That, you know, it's just, uh, <laughs> but you graduate, right? And, 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 and things change in life. I, I, I was talking to um, some pastors this week, because I've seen a lot of them. We had some gatherings and so forth, and then I had some coffees with people. And I talked to five pastors this week talking about a big transition, a big graduation into retirement. And some of these are like really big mega ministries, and some of these are little tiny ministries. But they're all got the same issues. And you all, okay, you know, what does it look like? And what does God want me to do? And that sort of thing. And that's really true for all of our lives. And of course, there's the ultimate graduation, which we'll see in Elijah's life today, into eternity. Because God has that for us. You see, you know, we had a, we had a, a very smart little girl in our house uh, years and years ago. And she said, Mom, Dad, I am never going to grow up. You know why? Because she was a smart little girl, and she could see that things were going to be a lot different, and she wasn't sure she was going to like it, so she's not going to grow up. But you know what happened? Three, three college degrees later, she grew up, okay? Because <laughs> it, it happens for all of us, right? But we're just not sure we want to go there. That's the thing about graduations. If, if you're graduating, by the way, I, I hate to give you the news, but this is the last graduation you're going to experience. You'll experience a lot more, but this is the last one you'll experience where you have some modicum of control over it. You know, like if you don't pull the grades, at least it used to be, if you don't pull the grades, you don't graduate, right? But they just, graduations and changes in life and life passages show up when we least want them sometimes. I mean, sometimes we feel like most of our graduations look like this. You have no control over them. You didn't ask for them. You may not think this is such a good one. It may not be a good one. It may be a total surprise. And you may be, this is an actual statistic, you may be one of the 80% of people in America who don't like change. So don't take my seat on Sunday morning. Uh, you're pretty sure that you could live without it and be just fine. <laughs> Isn't that kind of the way it is? Well, I got some great news. This is good news. I love being able to give good news. Good news from the Bible today. In God's scenario, in God's world, if you're a God follower, if you're a Jesus follower, rather than being complete losses, graduations in those kind of lives, graduations of life are always a new opportunity to see who God really is. And that's exactly the kind of story, that's exactly this pivotal story that we come to in 2 Kings chapter 2 about um, Elijah graduating into eternity and Elisha graduating into the prophet of the land, okay? And it, it, it tells us all about this God who makes those, who reveals himself in the midst of the graduations, and that's what makes it all work and what, it makes it so that he builds our lives and make them better and better and better and better, even when we can't fully understand it, even when we can't fully see it yet because we're in the midst of that graduation. Now, I, you can open your Bibles there if you want, because I'm going to read through the first section of this uh, chapter but um, in just a moment. But what we're going to see here in this story is, is three stories. Actually, there's four stories in the midst of this chapter uh, and this scenario of the changing of the guard, if you will, in ancient Israel, which is so pivotal for Jewish people. It's so pivotal for Christian people, and it's pivotal for us if we're going to see who God is. But in the midst of this, this is, those stories to, collectively, if you look at them, these are the stories in the Bible that Christians say we believe, and I'm suggesting you should, you'll see this at the end, but this is why people look at us and go, you're weird, you believe that? You're weird, okay? I mean, there's chariots of fire, there's water being healed, and there's just a really crazy thing at the end. I mean, first of all, you know, Elijah doesn't actually die, 
A little spoiler alert there. Uh, and, and, but then the last story, I, you know, I know you guys were going to read this this week and love this book. So I thought, this is the craziest story I've ever see, I tried to preach on. And you probably have never heard this story before in a sermon. You probably read it and thought, huh, that's an interesting one. But it's right at the end. It's the weirdest one of all, okay? But, I, but what you need to understand is the real reason we need to go through it is the whole chapter is a unit. It all fits together. And so we're going to go through all 25 verses today. Now, take that lump in your throat, push it back down, because I'm just going to read for you the first 13 verses, uh, and they won't be on the screen. Just listen. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible if you want to. Uh, but uh, I'm just going to read these first uh, 13 verses and kind of make some comments as we go along, uh, because uh, it sets up the whole point of the chapter, all right? And... Uh, I promise you the words will come back on the screen uh, and the sun will rise tomorrow. So here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven in a whirlwind, so there's a spoiler alert, that's how you find out right at the beginning how this happens. Elijah and Elisha, see, did you know those were two different? They're, they're, they're different. Elijah and Elisha were on their way to, from Gilgal and Elijah was said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, while you're still living, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the company of prophets, so there are these prophets around the land. This, the country was going to hell in a handbasket as far as the religion goes, but there were still believers, God always has a remnant, and there were these prophets in the land. And there were prophets at Bethel, came out to Elisha and asked, do you know the Lord is going to take your master from you today? In other words, they're a little nervous. Like, what's the new era going to look like? Okay, God's going to take Elijah. We depended on him. He fought our battles spiritually. He fought our battles in many ways. And I don't know what we're going to do without him. Do you know that the Lord is going to take Elijah today? And here's what Elisha says. Yes, I know, so be quiet. <laughs> it just strikes me as funny because he says it again here. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he, that is Elisha, replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho and the company of prophets at Jericho went out to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. <laughs> then the Elisha said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to, to the Jordan. In other words, the Jordan River and on the other side, what they called the Jordan over there. They called that land the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives, as you live, while you're still living, while I can still put eyeballs on you, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. And they'd been collecting these prophets along the way, okay, these from different cities. They'd kind of follow and saying, man, we got to watch this, make sure this goes down right. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. And here's what they saw. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. And the water divided uh, to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And when they cro had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, okay, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Because that's why Elisha's sticking with, he knew, he knew what was going on. And here's what Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And you have, asked, you have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And I wonder who's sticking close. But nothing is a surprise to God. Look what, look what happened. None of these graduations are a surprise to God. Look what happens. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses, horses of fire and the music da, 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 about and appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up into heaven, not in the chariot, but in a whirlwind. And you know that? If you knew this story, it's not the chariot, like sometimes we think. But Elijah saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. So the garment apparently fell off. And Elijah, here we are at verse 13, and we're going to begin to see five things that God wants you to know about himself and pack in your bags for whatever's next, because he knows what it is, but these are five things he wants you to know. Here's the first section. Elijah 
picked up Elijah's cloak, okay, the thing that he used on the Jordan River, that had fallen from him and went back, stood on the bank of the Jordan, and he took the cloak that had fallen off from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of, Israel, of Elijah? So this is, he strikes the water, nothing happens yet. Okay, where's God? And possibly he struck it again, we don't know. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. And watch this. The company of prophets from Jericho who were watching said, Phew, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. So God has made a way for what's next, in other words. You see, in, in, in many ways, this hinge story tells us that every single graduation in our life, every change that God brings in our life and transforms us and transforms our life, it's a preparation for this one, the ultimate one, the one where we graduate into eternity with him. It's, it's making us more and more and more in New Testament language like Jesus so that we can be ready for that eternity. And the wondrous thing is, as we see here in verse 14, we see uh, when, when Elijah takes the the, Elisha takes the cloak and, and parts the water, and, it's the, and exactly the same thing happens as his predecessor, as his mentor, as the one that he invest, you know, given his life to, okay, to learn from. You know, there are two things that we see in here of what God is like. The first one is this. God's power still works in every single era. It doesn't matter that it's 2018. God's power works just as much as it did in 850 B.C., God's power is still at work. God's power is at work in the era of Elisha, just like it was at work in the era of Elijah. You know, because we don't know for sure, but the indications are, the implication there is, is they were doing something that we do in our culture, in our society. It's like, oh, that stuff, that parting the water of the Jordan River, that is so yesterday. Right? We sort of get this chronological snobbery that we think that our era is different, that God surely can't work here, that God's power isn't as powerful as it is here, or, or that you know, we know better or we're wiser. And These guys were probably going, you know what, the last time the water parted was back in the days of Joshua. Joshua parted the water. Remember when, when he, they crossed the Jordan River? Well, that was like you know, 600, five, 600 years ago. So that was the Bronze Age. We're in the Iron Age, you know? We're in the postmodern world, but God's power still works. Even though we've graduated, maybe it's not up, but maybe we graduated down into the postmodern world. God's power still works, but that's not all. Look at this. God's effectiveness of that power is still at maximum even when things are different, when the personnel is different when the leadership is different. You see, the thing is, what I think God wants us to understand is he's our hero. Our next series is going to be called Heroes, by the way. Come back next week. It's Mother's Day, guys. Bring your mother. But, 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 it, but we ought not to invest our worship and our dependence like we should with God in those heroes. That's not what a, what, what a hero is. We'll, we'll, we'll define that as we go along. You see, it's not the charisma of the leader that makes the difference of the world. It's the power and the effectiveness of God. And so when that coach or that friend or that person or that whatever, you know, spouse even, you know, is gone and he's like, oh, I depended on that person. God's power is still just as effective in that new time, as difficult it may, as it may be at the moment. His, his, it's, it's still at maximum, regardless of what's happening. You see, the Bible has this theme running through it, these effects uh, running through it all the time, all the way uh, through the Bible. And, um, you know, one of the themes that runs through the Bible that has always fascinated me, I study it more and more and more and more uh, because it just, it, it sort of grips me, is um, a theme that starts in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall. Remember, we, we talked about that, we read that. And Adam and Eve have fallen, and sin has entered the world, and things are all upside down and screwed up. And God says, look, he makes it clear in chapter 3 in his little speech to the serpent and then to Adam and Eve, just before he has to kick them out of the garden. He makes his little speech saying, hey, I'm going to put this all back together. But the implication is, and you begin to read around the edges of it, you realize, I'm not just going to put it together the way it was. 
I'm going to put my creation back together to even better. In other words, I'm going to make things new, but new doesn't mean the same as it was. It means brand new. In fact, it runs all through the Bible to the point where um, at the end of the Bible, in in, uh, Revelation 21, verse 5, you've heard me quote this verse before, Jesus is sitting on the throne in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, the new earth, in the new heaven. He's sitting there, and, and the Lamb of God says, look, I'm making everything new. Those are some of the last words in the Bible. Because God, that's what God is up to. And because of that, he's using this power that, that um, in my grandmother's era, they used to call it the veil. The separation between the temporal world and the eternal world. And what if that veil is thin? That's kind of the phrase, the veil is thin. Paul gets very close in 2 Corinthians to talking about how thin this veil is. That God is crossing over all the time. That God is touching all the time. That those of us whom we long to see again, they're not that far away. The veil is thin. I, I, I've thought about this a lot since uh, July of 2014. You've heard me talk about it, but maybe not with these details. Um, I, I love July. Summer is my favorite time of year. I've always loved July because it's my birthday. You get to set off fireworks. It stops raining in Oregon most of the time. Right? I love it. But July 2014 was not such a great time. It was one of the most difficult things. I lost my, one of my, my best friend, one of my best friends. I mean, a, a guy whom I'd gotten close to it, and really quickly. I mean, it had only been like seven or eight years, and we got close really quickly, but like brothers. And I thought, ah, God, this is the one I've been praying for all along. And, and all of a sudden, he dropped dead of a heart attack. Just, and he was young, too, too young for a heart attack in my book. And it's like, God, what are you up to and so forth? And more and more during those months after that, it was like, hey, look, the veil is thin because here's, my friend was really good at this. He talked about eternity all the time. He would take books on heaven to friends that he knew that were dying of terminal diseases and say, hey, you're going to want to know what's next. This is, this is really cool. This is great. And encourage them. <laughs> Some of them were like, oh, okay. And, uh, but, but, he, but he said, too, he says, you know, I've got friends that are already there. In fact, one particular friend that was already there, he said, he says, I know something that no one else knows but he, me and him. And I'm going to tell you, I don't want you to tell anybody else, but if you can get a message to him, if you see him when you're in eternity, tell him about this. And he says, I don't know if this is in the Bible or not. I have no idea if, if, if this is really the way it works. But if he can get a message back to me that he heard from you that he's okay, I want you to tell him to send me back a message. And he gave me a, a, a thing. We had this little pact. I haven't heard anything from him. I did have a really cool dream, but that's another story. And so I thought about this, and, and the more I thought about it, I realized, you know, the veil really is thin. And then I went to meet with, um, or I went to Southern California, which is where they were living, and his wife was still living down there at the time. And I let her know, hey, I'm in town, and she said, hey, well, let's do coffee. And I said, yeah, I'd love to see how you're doing. She said, I'm doing fine, but I'll tell you about it when we... So we get together in Fullerton, right up uh, at a coffee shop, uh, right up the street from uh, Disneyland for whatever that's worth. And I just said, how are you doing? She said, I said, you fe- seem like you're doing really good. And she said, I really am. She said, in fact, it's just so weird. She said, I, I, it's weird for me to say. I can't tell everybody this because they don't understand it, but I think you will because of the way Chris talked about eternity so much. And I said, yeah. He, she said, I, I miss him terribly, but it's not really so bad because I feel like he's close. You know, and she said, I, I, I can't really put it into words. I said, I think I might know because you know, you know me. If it's in my head, it's coming out my mouth. Are you saying it's like the veil between here and there is thin? She said, yeah, that's exactly it. I feel like, you know, you know, I know the Lord's still with me, and I know he's got Chris, and I know, I know it's, it's back and forth. And, and, and that's a reality. It's not some spooky, weird thing. It's the reality that God wants us to understand, and I think that's what this text is trying to tell us, that no matter what happens in the transitions of your life, the veil between here and there is thin, and he's got this. He really does. In fact, now, Julie is, is his wife's name. She's getting married this month. And it was none of, none of my stinking business, but I vetted the guy. And God really gave her a new, new good guy. In fact, he's a C.S. Lewis scholar, so you know I'm going to like him. A pretty well-known one, too. So anyway, it, it, it's going to be a wonderful thing for them. But, but the reality is that veil is thin, and God's effectiveness and God's power crosses over all the time. But look what else we learn about God in the midst of the transitions, the graduations. Look at halfway through verse 15. It says, they, that is these prophets, went to meet him, that is Elisha, and bowed down to the ground before him because they knew the power of God was in them. Look, they said, 
We, your servants, have 50 able men. Let us go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up in this whirlwind. So they'd heard about the whirlwind. Has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. Maybe he's not dead. Maybe he's not gone. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. So Elijah didn't know all the details of what God was up to, which is oftentimes in every graduation, every change in life, every single one of them, we don't know everything God's up to, but Elijah pretty well knew that God had taken him to heaven, to eternity. But look at verse 17. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse, or too ashamed, literally. Um, why was he ashamed? What? I don't know, but maybe you've experienced this where you say, oh, I just don't know if this is a good idea. I just don't know. And somebody will pop up and go, don't you have faith? You know? You're a prophet. Don't you have faith? Now, if you've said that, I'm not ragging on you. I'm just saying. You know, that may be what kind of pushed him because, okay, all right. I'm too embarrassed because I'm a prophet of God. I am pretty well, pretty much know what I'm talking about, but go ahead. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find Elisha, him. When he returned, Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he's still there, said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? <laughs> That's ancient Hebrew for, I told you so, right? Yeah. And he, rightly so. I mean, that's the thing about Old Testament prophets. They have to be right all the time. <laughs> I mean, people accuse me of that in my house. You always have to be right. And I said, well, yeah, I'm a prophet, you know? <laughs> but I'm not like an Old Testament prophet, right? No, that would be silly, and I better be careful with my little joke there. But... Old Testament prophets, they literally did have to be right every time, or they were dead. That was a rule. If you said something that wasn't true and wasn't legit, and you leave Elijah out in the desert, you're dead, okay? People stone you in the bad sense. They'll pick, well, it's, they're both bad senses, but you'd pick up stones and kill them, kill them. But this also gives us some encouragement for those of us who lean toward fidgeting and worrying in the midst of the way life goes and whatever it is that's next and not sure we can handle it. And it's God's wisdom. If you really know that God's got this and that he knows what he's doing, then God's wisdom settles us. It, it calms us in a way. I think that's what, you know, Elijah didn't know all the details. He didn't have everything understood. He didn't have everything figured out. Have you noticed that God's wisdom is higher than ours? Have you noticed it's, it's so far out of our reach that we can't understand it, but if you think about it, would you really want a God whose wisdom you could totally get your mind around? I mean, don't you want a God who's got more wisdom than that? Because if God's only got as much wisdom as you can get your mind around, he can only do what you can basically do. So when the fact that God's wisdom is inscrutable to us so often is actually a plus and, and there's, there's a, when you realize it and look at it that way, there's sort of a rest in it. It's like, ah, I think that's, this is what Elisha is doing. He's, he, I think he's sitting by the pool, drinking lemonade, saying, I told you not to go. You know, I mean, I, I think that's, I'm overstating it, but I mean, I think that he was just chilling out about it because he knew that God's wisdom was higher than his and it was too wonderful and too amazing. You know, and, and you think about it, if God told us, exactly what was going to happen and why he was doing what he was doing, it would scare us so bad we would die, right? Because he, he's got all that in, uh, understanding. So that's where Elisha is. He's saying, look, no, no, I know God's got this. And so he's still in Jericho, and here comes the first of those really bizarre stories. Uh, not the most bizarre one, but, but the second most bizarre one. Look at verse 10, or sorry, uh, verse 19. It says, and the people of the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated. In other words, we're in a good place, as you can see. But the water is bad, and the land is unproductive. Hang on to that word unproductive. We'll come back to it. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure uh, to this day according to the word Elisha 
had spoken. Now, I've got to give you a couple of Bible study points right off the bat to understand what's going on here. You know, it's kind of a weird story about healing water. It's interesting it puts it that way. But this word unproductive is related directly. In fact, you could translate it almost miscarriages. So unproductive or unfruitful isn't all it is. It's not just that they're putting it on their crops and the crops weren't growing or the crops were dying. It was so bad it was killing people. People were, were, were dying, okay? And so, so this is a real problem. This is a great place to live. You can see it's, it's perfectly situated, but the water's killing us, Elisha. And when you read the whole story of God, as we're doing in the Love This Book, you, can, you find out why. Because back in the day in Joshua, when Joshua, you know, fit the battle of Jericho, remember that? Circled around seven days, and then seven times on the seventh day, blew the trumpets, and the walls came down. Joshua put a curse after that, in, in chapter 6 of Joshua, on Jericho. And the curse said, if you ever try to rebuild this city, if anyone ever tries to rebuild this city, uh, you're going to get sick, you're gonna be, things aren't going to go well for you, your children are going to be sick, and it's going to be a terrible, terrible thing. Well, along comes Ahab, not Captain Ahab, the, the Ahab we looked at last week, the king, and he says, oh, I don't care about this God, so he rebuilds it. And these people still have this curse on them, and their water is horrible. Their water is, 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 is killing them. What's this about? Why, why does God do this? Why does he heal this? If the curse was already on and so forth, you know why I think he does? I think Because I think God will even rewrite the curses, even curses that he's allowed or placed on. And, and you know what that's called? That's called God's grace. And these people are thrilled because God's reversed himself on this. God just said, no, no, I'm going to reverse this curse. And, and, and there is, there's something thrilling about it. It's, it's like those little graces that come into our lives or we're in the midst of a, a change and you, we know it's going to be different after this, but we don't know how and we're a little worried and it's like God drops this little, boo, I got this. Remember when I did that? Remember when I did that? Look, I'm going to do this. Look, I'm show, I got this. And it just thrills us, even when the small things happen. Uh, ben, our Ben, who's up here from time to time, he's on a paid uh, sabbatical right now, and he's hiking an 800-kilometer uh, trail in the Pyrenees in Spain. It's a pilgrimage from the Middle Ages. And thousands of people do this every year. In fact, Martin Sheen made a movie about it. It's either The Way or The Walk. I can't remember which one of those it is. But, but uh, Ben's uh, about 10 days away from finishing this puppy. <laughs> it's a long, long walk. But the other night we got a text from him that said, um, you know, he's learning, he's meeting all kinds of people from different nationalities. He's hiking with a guy from Ireland and, and uh, you know, Czechs and all kinds of things like that. And, and uh, th this particular day, he, was, he, he and this other guy, he calls him Hungarian Ben, because this guy's name's Ben too. Hungarian Ben and Ben, to sell, uh, traveled uh, uh, an extra distance. I think it was something like 12 kilometers because they didn't want to stay in this one town. But by the time they got to this other town, uh, there was no room for them, okay? Because everybody had already taken all the rooms. Because what they do is they, they turn these ancient monasteries, in some cases ancient churches, although the churches are still alive and active apparently in this place. Uh, Catholic, of course. Uh, but they're, 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 um, they, they turn these monasteries and so forth into what they call albergues, which are basically hostels or, or places for these thousands of people that walk this trail every year, uh, stay in. But by the time they got to this particular town, there was, nobody, there was no room. So they sat in the city square, and, and Arben said that, you uh, said it was kind of funny, he said, last night uh, as we're sitting in the square, Hungarian Ben says, dear God, send us an angel to give us a room. And almost immediately, this lady comes running across the square. <laughs> and she says, go, 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 go. So they, she brings them to this gorgeous, refurbished, cleaned up, ancient monastery from like the 10th century. And they're the first ones to stay in it because they hadn't opened it yet. They weren't ready, but she says, you can stay here. And they get this cheap place and this gorgeous place and good food and all this kind of stuff. Isn't that amazing? And I said, well, what does the Hungarian man think about the angel that God sent him? <laughs> I haven't heard yet. But... But I mean, is that, is that a grace of God? I think it is. Was, was Hungarian Ben swearing when he said that? Maybe, I don't know. Did God answer that as a prayer? Maybe, I think he did. You know, it's like, it's like God says, I got this. And he's always, even when we don't believe him, even when we don't follow him, like this city here, 
of Jericho. He says, look, I got this, and you don't know that I've got this, so I'm going to show you, because I want you to come back to me. That's his whole obsession, redeeming and making us new. That's the whole thing that God is up to the whole time. And God's grace, when you realize that's what he's up to, it still thrills us, if you will. You know, sometimes I think that, uh, that there's this principle in science called the conservation of energy. Have you ever heard of that? If you've been, I'm not a physicist, but as simplistically as I can think, you know, in, in high school physics, you learn about this, where, where energy does, isn't created and it, you can't destroy it, it just goes somewhere else in another form, energy. And I often wonder if that's like the energy that, that uh, Moses or Elijah couldn't see on Mount Sinai or they would die. They had to have their eyes shielded, right? Could only see the back of it because God's got this energy, this power, you know, uh, all over, um, stashed in all different forms all over the universe. And whenever he needs a little of it to give a little extra oomph to his little grace, gracious displays, he just puts it down. And again, if we knew all of that and we understood it all, the energy would blow our minds. And yet God, every once in a while, it says, okay, I'm trying to bring you to myself. I want to bring you to myself. So here's a display of who I am. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal you. I'm even going to reverse the curses, which is ultimately what he's trying to do, is reverse the curse of Eden and the fallenness of our sin, isn't it? That's why Jesus came. That's why we're going to have a new, the New Testament says we, we are new creatures in Christ. It's why it's, it says, Jesus says, I'm going to create a space, place for you. And we find out it's the new heaven and the new earth. And one day he's coming back because he's going to restore it all. That's what this principle of God's grace is for and why he gives those little graces along the way to prepare us for that one. But then we come to the story that is a story uh, that's uh, the weirdest one of all. And I'll bet you never heard a sermon on this one. But here we go. From there, Elijah... <clears throat> Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the, the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Now, understand that Bethel was a place, one of the places where Jeroboam had sacrificed to Baal and Baal, to Baal, to the fertility god, and so forth. They came out and said, get out of here, baldy. That's not a biblical slam. Um, they get... And they said, get out of here, Baldy. And he turned around and looked at them and called down the curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then the two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. <laughs> Weird, huh? I mean, what are we supposed to get out of that? Like, when the pastor shows up, lock up your children? You know, never, let, never let them be alone with a bald man? I mean, what? Well, uh, well, I have to admit, when I read this this week, I thought to myself, man, I'd like some of that. For those guys, I'm sure it was guys, that stole the $1,600 worth of tools out of my shed at Christmas time, and I just discovered that yesterday they stole another one. I'd like to call bears out of the woods. But it, <laughs> honestly, that was, that was a carnal moment. But just two points here. First one is background, okay? These are not little kids. It's not like, get out of here, Baldy. No, these guys are like, 11, 12, some early teens. So in those days, they were actually adults. Some of them probably knew how to wield a sword and that sort of thing. So they were threatening the prophet of God. We don't need you. We don't need your God. Okay, that's what this was, all right? And, and, and it doesn't actually say that the bear killed them. Literally, it, it means when it says it mauled them, it literally means it broke them, which I bet it did. You know, it, it, it sort of cleaved them. Some of them were cleaved. Braveheart sort of stuff, I suppose. But it also implies that there were many, many more than just these 42. Because a bunch of people got away, apparently. And, and so it was a big, threatening deal, okay? But here's the, here again is the thing. We look at this and we go, God, wh why would you do that? Why would you allow this to happen? But you know that there's things about God that we don't understand what he's up to. We can't figure him out, and it doesn't seem safe because he's a God who's a holy God. In other words, this is not a story of a grumpy prophet. It's the story of a judging God. It's a story of a God who says, hey, enough's enough. I am God, and you're not. 
And, 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 and that should kind of send a shiver down our spine. I mean, we live in a world where if God can't explain himself completely, he can't be a good God. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? You know, it's like if, if God can't explain himself and what he's up to and why he does stuff, then that just can't be a good God. In fact, that's how secularists kind of zero God down and down and down. It couldn't be that God would explain himself, couldn't explain himself to us. It's sort of like uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous um, atheist from the early 20th century, and now Richard Dawkins is using this line too. Uh, uh, when someone toward the end of his life uh, said to Bertrand Russell, you know, all your life you've spent telling people there's no God. Well, if, they're hap- if you're wrong and you meet God, what are you going to say to him? He's going to say, he said, well, I'll say, please, sir, tell me why you made yourself so hard to find. Which, you know, yeah, it's goofy because he didn't. But the reality is, is that unless you can answer all my questions and to my satisfaction, I mean, how puny is that? Who would want to, you know, I have to agree with secularists. If that's how puny God is, that, he, that we can get our minds and our ideas and everything understanding around him, then I don't want that God either because that God's worthless. But that's not who God is. And every once in a while, he has to show it by judging people and setting them back. And I think that's what this story is about. It's, it's very similar to this. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but it just came back. It's, it's clearly, I think, what this story is talking about. It's, it's the Narnian story in Lewis's Narnia, where the children have just shown up in Narnia. It's, it's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, their first time in Narnia, okay? And they haven't even met Aslan, who later on, at least in Lewis's letters, we find out is the Christ figure. So they haven't even met Aslan yet, but they find out he's a lion. And the youngest child... Uh, the, uh, of the group, of the four, Lucy says, hey, he's a lion? Yeah, he's a lion. Well, is he quite safe? And the Narnian answer is, safe? Of course he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. But he's good. And here's the thing that I think Lewis put his finger on, and I think this story is trying to tell us over and over and over again. Of course God's not safe. So when God shows his judgment, it should freak us out. It still freaks us. The very fact that we read this story, we go, whoa, what kind of God is that? It freaks us out, but it should, because he is the holy God, and we don't give the the terror of that holy God when we are in our sin enough credit. But at the same time, he may not be safe under those conditions, but he's good, and good is is way better than safe. Because safe just means you got a little corral around you, you got a little, you know, padded walls around you, everything's all safe and comfy, but your life is going nowhere. So safe is overrated, but good. That's what God is. He's always good. So here's what we have, the five truths about God that he wants you to pack in your bags. God's power still works in every era. It describes God's Goodness. God's power, God's effectiveness is still maximum regardless of when, even when things are different and you don't understand them. God's wisdom still settles us. God's grace still thrills us in the midst of some of those things. And God's judgment still freaks us out, and it should, because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have confidence that God could make things new. Because he wouldn't be that powerful of a God. You see? It... it, it um, I'm going to leave that up there again and let you just kind of write it down if you want to or take a picture with your phone. And while you're doing that, I'm going to play you something over the sound system. Do you, do you guys like, do you, do you listen to Christian music? I mean, I, I am so bad. I, um, I, I download the music we sing here because I love it, okay, because I think the theology is straight. But I am such a theological nerd. A lot of Christian songs, a lot of Christian music is floating along. To, I just, I can't listen to it because I... I over-theologize, like, where's that in the Bible? That kind of thing, okay? So I told you I'm weird. Um, But um, Ben has been trying to get me into a Christian artist for a long time, and it just didn't stick, you know, three or four years ago. I downloaded an album, and I listened to it for a couple days, and I thought, that's just good, but it's just not my cup of tea. Uh, A guy by the name of Andrew Peterson, okay? And if you're you're judging me for that right now, just ask yourself, do you get into your kids' music? But anyway, um, he... uh, he, he did something on Good Friday this year that, that, that I, 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 and now I'm really into Andrew Peterson. Here's why. When Ben uh, did the Good Friday service, he put those uh, photos of uh, famous works of art about the cross and about Jesus dying and being taken off the cross and being buried. Remember that? 
And then over the top of that, he played a song about, you know, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. And then the background, the voices are going, uh, you'll be with me today in paradise like Jesus said to the thief. You know, I thought, man, that is such a cool song, the way he wove those biblical themes together. That is just great. So I said, what is that song? He goes, it's Andrew, Andrew Peterson, Dad. I go, oh. So I downloaded the album. It's called Resurrection Songs, uh, a prologue. And um, it's, it's all about the cross and the, the prologue to the resurrection. And he's got another one about resurrection songs after the resurrection. But I downloaded this one, and that song is on it. But then I found another one about a week ago, two weeks ago, on this album. And, and the, the title of the song is Always Good. And what stunned me when I was studying this passage this week is he goes through the events of our lives of trying to figure out God and the transitions and the changes how are we supposed to view you, God? How are we supposed to understand it? And it keeps coming back, I'm always good. I'm always good. So I just want to ask you to either watch the screen, close your eyes if it helps, enjoy the music. Go ahead. This is sort of like the Christian version of Ed Sheeran, if you know who Ed Sheeran is, okay? <laughs> but, so it's good music. But I really want you to get the words. So listen to the words and see if these don't, because he's speaking biblically and understanding. Just right in line with the story, he may be, God may not be safe, but he's good. Listen to this. See if this doesn't touch your soul. Then I got one comment. I'm going to pray, and we're going. Do you remember how Mary was grieving? How you wept and she fell at your feet? If it's true that you know what I'm feeling Could it be that you're weeping with me? I think that's what God's trying to tell us from his original story today, that uh, 
There will be changes. There will be things in your life that you can't understand. But what you need to know is I'm always good. You may not understand that I've got this, but I do. Because I am. I may not be safe, but I'm always good. And good is better than safe. And that's what you need to know. That's what you need to have in your heart. That God for whatever's next. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you've shown us. That you do have this. Not just today, but in this whole series. uh, From your story. Your original story. And Lord, I just pray that uh, if there's anybody here who is experiencing that kind of heartache today, that it would be something that is so clear to them that they see your goodness coming close to them and they're pushed toward you as a result of it. That it, It's those moments, those changes, those fearful things that actually push us closer to you than even the joyous times. And Lord, I, I'm not praying for lack of joy around here, but I'm praying that joy would come because we know that you're that kind of God, that we would be those kind of people, that this would be a church that would be a beacon of that kind of This is who God is. And that we'd be able to share that and share your grace and your knowledge and your power. Even the power of your judgment to set things right. That we would be able to live in that, in you, in such a way that others would go, man, I want some of that. And that others would say, that we would be drawn to hear what you've done in our lives. I thank you that you're that kind of God, that you're always about, even in these changes and graduations and even in the judgment times, you're all about bringing us closer into you because you're the only one with the goodness that can handle what we've got and what we need. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you for that. And we pray that you would turn our eyes to you this week in a whole new way. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here and for coming for us. That's why we pray in your name. Amen.